So Money Episode 716, Ask Farnoosh, with special co-host, Belinda Rosenblum. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. You're listening to So Money, everyone. April 13th, Friday the 13th. That just hit me. Yikes. Uh, welcome to the show. It's a good thing. It's, you know, let's, let's say that it's actually our luckiest day yet. It is actually my nanny's birthday. Jenny, happy birthday to you. She has the day off. And as you may know, uh, I can't do my job without support. And she is my number one, um, individual outside of my husband who is very much um, our support system keeps us, uh, keeps the wheels turning in the Tarabi Dusinger household. Someone actually asked me the other day on a Facebook Live, how do you manage with two kids and a career? And I, I, well, a lot of days I have messy days, but you know, the fact that I can show up for work and show up for my kids and show up for my family is thanks to having a, a, a network and a community and support, whether that's Jenny who comes every day at 8am or my husband who leaves work early sometimes, or my mother who flies in from California to be with us when we're, we don't have child support. Um, my, my son's school, which allows us to extend his day if need be. We haven't had to do that yet, but it's nice to know that's an option. All this to say that uh, I'm very grateful. Actually, we just surpassed six million downloads on the sh- on this podcast, and I uh, I'm film I'm recording this actually on the sixth. Oh, sorry, on the fifth of April. And I just wrapped a Facebook Live and an Instagram Live answering your money questions, celebrating 6 million downloads, giving away prizes. It was a lot of fun. I think I should do more of those. What do you think? It's been a really incredible ride with the podcast, 6 million downloads. Cheers to 6 million more. And very excited to bring on the show today a friend of the podcast. You've If you listen to this show, you know who I'm talking about. If you're in the money space, you really enjoy personal finance, you've probably come across Belinda's work. Belinda Rosenblum is a certified financial planner and a wealth expert. She... shares all of her advice and her programs at ownyourmoney.com. And she's here with us now live. Belinda, welcome. Thank you so much, Farnoosh. It's great to be here. And just to be clear, I'm actually originally a CPA. Um, so I have the accounting Oh, I knew that. I, I that's re- okay. <laughs> my, my eyes did a cross and I read CFP instead of CPA. So that's my no bad. No problem. I just don't want to, um, you know, come off like I'm, I'm going to be your investing guru. I'm more <laughs> of the, um, you know, financial therapist, financial coach, uh, you know, wealth expert that can really guide you through the inner game and the outer game and making sure that we win both of them for you. Well, I think that, and thank you for correcting me. Um, what's really exciting in your world right now is you have this big launch, uh, the step-by-step plan to get your money in order. Tell us a little bit about the program that you're kicking off. Sure. So it's a free online workshop. It's called Enjoy Extra Cash Every Month. And when I really stepped back and I was like, what, where are people struggling? You know, what help do they need? And what I find is that most of the people that come to us find that they're making good money, Maybe they're under earning, they want to make more, but they're making some money and yet they struggle and stress about their bills. 
And I truly believe that we are working way too hard to stress as much as we are about money. And so I am committed to giving everybody this four-step plan to be able to manage their money and to feel really powerful, like to make sure that you own your money and control it instead of feeling so controlled by it. And so we're um, we're excited to be kicking it off. It's a three-video series. It comes with downloads. There'll be a live webinar. And it all kicks off on April 19th. So everyone is prime uh, time to be able to jump into that. And uh, that we're putting at ownyourmoney.com forward slash uh, Farnoosh, right? Is that your preference? Yeah, Farnoosh, that's or, great. Or yeah, Farnoosh great. is easy Works. to spell. Ish. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> or I can do so many, you can pick. But um, I think I'll do both just to make sure. Okay, you we'll have do both. And we'll put those need. links we'll on our both. site. We'll put those links at so many podcast.com in case you're great. jogging or whatever you're doing as you're listening to the show and you didn't write that down. But um, we'll, we'll provide those links for you. And tell us a little bit about some of the case studies, Belinda. I actually watched a video of a woman who went through your program and had this massive money transformation. You, you're changing lives. Thank you. I truly believe that I am. And it's a lot of what gets me up every day and what had me start this 11 years ago. And I started back in 2007 when, and you know, as did you around then, I believe when it wasn't so sexy to talk about money, like people were very skeptical when I was starting this up and I just could see what was coming down the horizon that we didn't have control of it. It was just like, we were very unconscious about it. And, and at the time didn't have a lot of stress until the recession in 2008. And then it sort of started and hasn't really stopped. And so um, the case study that I shared with Farnoosh is um, a woman named Jen, and she actually first heard about me from Farnoosh's podcast when I was on with you a couple of years ago, which oh, was man. just awesome back That's in October awesome. 2016. And, you know, like everybody, like listen to the podcast, start to take action. And she'd reached out at that time. We were doing a, a different free workshop that she had stepped into and she was, she was turning 40 and she was just really looking at it like, you know what? I'm working kind of like the person I was telling you about before, like she was working hard and she just felt like she was struggling. She was getting herself into credit card debt and really wanted to create something different for herself. You know, she just got that, like she couldn't keep going the way she was going because it wasn't a life that she wanted to lead. Like, sure. It looked good. She was in advertising sales, a big media company. She lived in Denver, but she wasn't really happy in it, you know, and she had it together in so many areas, but she really needed help. And so, um, what we did was she had started with the free workshop and then we're actually going to be opening enrollment, which is what Jen did too, for our money makers Academy. So this is our monthly program where we really teach you the step-by-step skills to, um, to take control of your money and to, handle both the mindset side and really get the practical skills you need. And so she, um, what she was able to do was to start to recognize where she was in her own way, where she had been procrastinating, um, where she had, was settling, right. And really tolerating things that weren't working, but she wasn't sure how to fix. Like she had bought a timeshare years before and she had big monthly payments for it. And, um, it was just stressing her out. She wasn't really using it and it was just all very scary and out of control. And so she, um, she started tracking her money. Okay. And so I don't teach a budget in the normal formal sense, but I teach, and I actually included this in the free workshop too, 
I believe that it's possible for you to track your money, automate as much as you can, and then focus on, if you think of like the rule of 80-20, right? Like 20% of the items are causing 80% of the stress and variation in where your money goes. So I want to have you focus on those three to five areas. So we had her start to do that and then had her look at the income side as well. And essentially over the year period, she was able to generate an extra $2,000 for herself every month right? Like in terms of mm. getting, in terms of on the income side, in terms of getting out of her timeshare, in terms, and then <laughs> this is another little added. Well, she also fell in love with like a great guy. I exactly, bet I saw. Right. So that helps when you're feeling good about your life it's and you have all, confidence so and you have support. Tips. Yes. That yeah. goes a long way too. Yeah. And she, um, you know, where, where I was going with it is that I think that people don't realize the weight and the burden that debt and that a lack of uh, control around your money creates on you. And so when she felt like she was actually like a worthy candidate to meet somebody, because I can't tell you how many women, particularly in their 20s and 30s, feel like they don't have their money together and they're afraid to get in a relationship because then they're going to have to show the man that they want to be with what a mess they are. And so they will literally like either not date or not really be their best person. And so once she got under control, then she really got like, I'm a rock star. Like someone's going to be really lucky to be with me. And she met a man. She ended up moving to California with him now and is like beyond happy that she's living this life now that she had put on hold for so many years. And so I want everyone to get that it's not just about sure the extra cash every month is nice, but it's also about what it does for you in your whole life. When people lose weight, once they get their money under control, they meet the person of their dreams and it's all possible for you to, once you're able to take control. Yes. All right. Let's help our listeners who've written questions, help them get more control of their lives. And a lot of these questions actually came in through Instagram and Belinda, you've actually brought over a couple of questions from your community. Thank you. We wanted to um, help as many people as possible, but let's start with Ellie. She writes, um, my self-employed husband spends 33 to 35% of his gross income on business expenses. Is this a lot? What are your thoughts? Well, if he is, I mean, Belinda, we're both self-employed. I mean, that doesn't mm -hmm. sound like a lot to me, especially if that also includes his salary. If he's, is he, you know, is he paying himself a salary? I don't know what his business structure is, if he even has incorporated or if this is just kind of freelance money that's coming in and he hasn't structured it. But I think that doesn't seem alarming to me. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with you. The way that I read it was if there's um, if there's revenue, right, or income that he's bringing in, and then 33 to 35% of that income is going to business expenses, then he gets what's left, right? Mm -hmm. So the profit of the business. And that's 65 to 67% profit. And yeah. so I would really encourage her to flip it the other way. So instead of looking at the glasses half empty, look at the glasses half full. Yes. Like take home 65 to 67% is actually... I think quite good. I mean, it, it does depend on certain factors, like how long he's had his business, what his business is in, what the expenses are for, because like a coaching or consulting business will have less expenses generally, but a product-based business will usually have greater expenses and a smaller profit. Yes. Right? So I would kind of information, but 
I think I, that that's actually not so bad. I don't think it includes a salary, though. I think no, probably not, and that's what? okay. I, I I really appreciate her question, though, because I think that when you're married to someone who is an entrepreneur and you are not, or you have like a nine to five, or you're not working, it's hard to really understand and and uh, maybe even empathize with how the business is structured, how the money comes in and goes out. So it's worth it if you have an Ellie to have a conversation with your partner about like what are these expenses, how are they helping the supporting the business. And that way you can start to see this is not, not so much like just expenses, but in some cases, maybe they're investments, right? These are systems that he's paying for or vendors or or coaching, coaching or, or whatever, right? That it's going crucial. to pay off. But that said, maybe there are areas where he can be more conservative. And I think as a, the partner of somebody who's an entrepreneur, it's important that even though maybe you're not involved in the business, that if you care and you're concerned that you're l- looking at the the cash flow and and I think that's just being in partnership in some way with you know with your partner over this business, <laughs> even though maybe you're not directly contributing to it, because you might bring some really good ideas to the table in terms of how he can save um, or how he can better invest. So try to like like Belinda said, you know, look at this as half glass full, but also as an opportunity for you to engage and talk and learn um, and maybe even contribute to, to some extent. Like I have friends who run businesses, women, and their husbands eventually came on board as uh, the budgeters and the financial kind of CFOs, so to speak, of the business. And that's a way for uh, everyone to be involved and for there to be transparency ongoing. Right. I love that. And I will say, so my husband has come on to our business now about nine months ago and bringing him into some of the finances and the extent of business expenses that we have was pretty shocking for him. Like, cause he, you know, because I handle money, he just figured I had it handled and I did, but it is interesting when we bring our partners into the choices that we're making and the investments we're making in our business and, um, you know, the team we have and how much they cost and really letting them see the whole picture. And just to, to look at, if you take a step back from the personal side, like look at how you've separated out your business and your personal to make sure that his business is being tracked separately. And then look at the household contribution he's able to make from the business into personal and then have a conversation like, is that enough? Is that what you want to then be able to fuel the goals and dreams you have for your family? And it could generate a really great conversation. Totally agree with you. That's a good point. If it would make you feel more comfortable, Ellie, to know that every month or every time he gets a project and gets paid that a certain percentage, it's irrefutable, always gets paid into the household income or sort of household savings bucket, that might be more um, reassuring because then you know that no matter what, his business will support the family no matter how much it makes or how much it doesn't. Okay. This is another question about couples. Lisa asks, uh, my husband and I are ready to start looking into financial planning and we don't know who to hire. We have a friend that's been doing financial planning for about 10 years and is doing well. But then she says, you know, my dad also uses a financial firm that has done very well for him over the long run. How do you decide between two financial planners? And it looks like Belinda at this point, she's just kind of going off of word of mouth and recommendations, which is a great place to start. But just because your dad really likes his financial planner doesn't mean that that person is the right fit for you. No matter how well this person has done for your dad, it's, this is such a personal, um, this is a personal sort of question and, and solution, right? You have to meet with these people. And I, I actually went to high school with Lisa, so I know her. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> and um, you probably know her dad too. And yeah. I probably know her dad. Well, I don't think I've met her dad. I think her dad is wealthy and done well. But mm-hmm. I think I I would say to Lisa, and you can definitely chime in. You know, mm-hmm. it's really about first figuring out why you want to work with a financial planner, and if it's for someone because you want someone to come in and kind of level the financial playing field, come up with a holistic plan, identify maybe some areas for better management, like maybe you're behind on certain insurances, your retirement needs catch up, you haven't saved for college for your kids and can kind of tell you, give you a priority checklist. That's what we did in our early days of our marriage. My husband and I, we hired a financial planner who was able to sort of from a broad objective perspective, give us some really concrete steps, action steps that we did, that we accomplished. And after a couple of years, what the only thing that was really left to maintain was our portfolio. And at that point, I felt it would be better to migrate over to an automated investment platform to reduce mm-hmm. our fees because you know we're we're in the camp and we talk about it on the show all the time that we don't believe in like actively managed portfolios. We don't think that they necessarily do better than just passive investing, index funds, ETFs, things like that. Mm-hmm. And in the long run, you save so much money in fees. So we thanked her for her services and she understood and we moved over to um, an automated investment platform. So my advice to Lisa and her husband is, you know, if all you need is sort of the investment stuff figured out, there are other ways to do that more effectively and cost effectively than working with a a CFP who's going to charge you one to one and a half percent every year of those assets. If you're looking for some handholding, some guidance, some sort of objective voice, then a financial planner, a good one who understands you and your goals and works with couples like you in the same boat with kids and assets, I think that's a good way, a good reason to then maybe look into talking to planners and you got to interview them, you know, get a good feel. Your gut will tell you. Right. I, I totally love that. And what, um, and I love that question about the why, because I think sometimes we think, okay, like it's on my checklist. I need to look into financial planning, but until we know why we want it, then it's hard to find the right fit for the person that's going to fill that role. Right. Cause I don't want it to just be something that you do because someone told you to do it like a should from somebody else. I want it to be them or Lisa in this case being clear and all of our listeners being clear on why they want the um, support in the first place and understanding, are they looking for a one-time plan or are they looking for ongoing assets under management? Because oftentimes those are different people, right. That are going to be serving in those two roles. I like the idea of a referral and we definitely want to have you interview um, and ask important questions like, um, and I, it, Forbes has a great article on this and I can send it to you if you want to include it in the resources, but like 10 questions to ask when choosing a financial advisor. And I'll usually have people ask something like these questions once they're clear on why do they want it? How much money do they need help with? Um, you know, what's the education or comfort level that you're looking for getting from this person? Because you really have to make sure that you have a comfort level with them so you can ask your questions and that they have a respect and interest in you and your goals and dreams, right? So that you're all on the same page. And so, so here are some questions that people can think about asking when they're doing this kind of interview. Is it okay for me to run through them real quick? Have at it. Go, go for okay, it. Great. So um, like, how do you charge for your services? 
right? I think that's an important. How do you charge and how much do you charge? Uh, two, what licenses, credentials, or other certifications do you have? Because there is a difference between a CFP versus CFA versus someone who does this for fun. <laughs> so you want to be really clear on the certifications that they have. And they do have different fiduciary responsibilities, like different responsibilities to you as the client based on that. Uh, three, what services do you or your firm provide? Four, what types of clients do you specialize in? Could I see a sample financial plan so that you can get an idea of the end game, like what they'd be creating for you? And is that really what you're looking for? Uh, six, what is your investment approach? Seven, how much contact you have with your clients? Like on that one, when I've worked with an advisor, I like to have at least annual, even quarterly meetings so that if it's going to be actively managed, I know where it's getting managed. And so I think that's important for you to think about what do you want and then what does this person do and how do they fit? Uh, eight, will I be working with you or with your team? Nine, what makes your client experience unique? And then 10, um, really think to yourself, like, did they ask you questions and seem interested in you? And so when you're choosing a planner, we want to know why, and then we want to make sure that it's really the right fit. Thank you for that comprehensive checklist. I think mm -hmm. <laughs> she's got way more than she asked for here, but Lisa, good luck to you. And I know that this is something that's on a lot of people's minds. This next question comes from Michaela. Do you want to take this for us and read it off, Belinda? Sure. So Michaela asks, what is the priority ranking for a double income, no kids or dink household? I'm sure it varies, but general ranking in your opinion. For me, number one, we saved six month emergency fund. Number two, we paid off the remaining balance on our student loans. Number three, what should we do next with excess savings? Invest in property, increase 401k, open up a Roth. And um, yeah, so that was her question. Yeah. So I mean, I, I think that obviously she doesn't have some of the expenses that families normally would paying for college, raising a kid in the United States from zero to 18 is um, an average of a quarter of a million dollars. And that it doesn't even include like if they're going to private school, that's public school most of their life. So you have in some ways more money to work with, uh, all things equal. Uh, but I think first you want to look at what are some of the, 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 the needs that are lacking that aren't maybe fully um, satisfied yet. Areas like you talked about for your 401k, Roth, how's your retirement plan? Have you done the, have you run the numbers? Do you feel like you're in a good place with retirement? If you have excess dollars, that could be something to prioritize. If that's all taken care of, then maybe it is your insurances. You know, do you, do you think that you need life insurance or disability insurance? Um, those are also important areas that we often forget to, 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 re to visit, you know, we sort of take them for granted. Oh, well, work offers me some disability. But if you work for yourself or you find that your work plan, your work health disability plan is limiting, maybe you want to up that coverage. Then if you've kind of figured out, you have the foundation, she, you know, she's got the emergency fund, she's paid off the student loans, she has now excess savings. I think this is an opportunity to, at this point, if you've taken care of a lot of the needs, is to think about what do you want? And, and I'm not going to be the one to tell you that you should invest in property. That's a, I think there are a lot of benefits to that, but that also has to make 
sense for you and in your family? You know, is this like son an endeavor that you want to participate in? Because when you become a landlord, it's, you know, there's responsibilities that go with that. There's definitely some money to be made there. But I like where you're thinking. I like that she's now, you know, Belinda thinking about how can I use this money to get money back? I want an ROI on this. So it could be that you just put more money in the stock market. You could put money in real estate. You could put money in alternative investments like art or, uh, you know, some people are really into cryptocurrency. I'm not, but you know, this is where now you have the wiggle room to take more risk with your money, but hopefully in the long run, earn more than you would if you just kept it in a bank account. What would you recommend, Belinda? Right. So, um, yeah, and I, I think you made a really good point that I think sometimes, you know, we'll think about the emergency fund and we'll think about paying off our debt. Um, and I think in this case, it's particularly credit card debt. I would have wanted to see her pay off, which I'm sure she did. But for all the other people listening, sometimes paying off your student loans may not necessarily be the best thing right away. Like if you don't have some of these other things handled that you mentioned, like some of those key foundational things. Um, but I think my answer varies a little bit based on her age you know, Michaela's age, even where she lives, the size of her income and the goals that they have for themselves. Cause she didn't touch on some of those things. And so I think that's why when I do my Q and A's, oftentimes the people are there. So it's a little easier when you can ask the follow on questions. Cause like when she said property, I wasn't sure if this was her first home or it could be a second home, you know, or like a, a rental property, right? That yeah, I, I took it to, I took it as like at a rental property. Rent. Yeah. Um, I don't know if she owns a home, but if she doesn't, maybe that's a priority before you become an investor. Yeah, it could be. And so for her to really think through, like, what are her goals and making sure that not only does she have some, uh, like emergency fund, but also a fund for those expenses that aren't regular, but frequently happen, you know, the ones that are more quarterly or annual, maybe having, uh, a pool that she sets aside for travel or property at some point, or even something like a house hack, like a two family. I did that for years. I bought a two family at age 28. And that was very useful for me because I lived in one, I rented out one. And then once I got married, I moved out. Now I rent out two and that's just tremendous income. So if she's in a position where they can, you know, save some money for that and consider that as an option. I think that could be great. I would absolutely like to see her max out a Roth IRA if she hasn't reached the income limits yet, because she may as a double income household potentially. Um, you know, so just to, for those listening, um, you can contribute to a Roth up to $5,500, um, under age 50, and then it's $6,500 over 50. But what happens is that I think because it's such a nice vehicle, if you're single at $120,000, the amount that you can contribute starts to decrease. And then it phases out by the time you get up to 135,000. And then for our double income, it starts to phase out at 189 and then totally phases out at 199. So if she's still underneath that, I'd like to see her put away to the Roth. Um, now, do you agree with that as a possibility too? Yeah. Take advantage of it before, like you said, it no longer becomes an eligible vehicle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I like that as a good option for her to max out a Roth IRA, to max out her 401k. I think that was one of the biggest things that literally, as soon as I started work, I made sure I was maxing out my 401k and I just had to adjust my daily life and my spending to make sure that I could keep that up. Um, so that's something that I'd like to see her do. And then, uh, potentially start to build other investments, you know, and invest pretty aggressively if she's on the younger side, because she wouldn't need the money for a little while. I think that's one of the mistakes I see people make that they're in their twenties, thirties, even forties, but they, 
they um, invest like they're 60. You know what I mean? Like they're going to need the money in five years or 10 years. And the reality is that you're probably not. And so I think that that um, I like that you touched on that. I think that that could certainly be a possibility for her as well. All right. Well, let's let's tackle a question from your community, Belinda. Um, there's a question here. Uh, I, I don't, I, I guess, an anonymous person, or maybe you know the name. But when mm-hmm. she says, when she was growing up, her parents barely had enough money to pay the bills. Now she finds herself repeating that pattern. We talked about this earlier, you know, how you're, well, maybe before we were on the air that like your seven-year-old self sometimes is managing your money as an adult mm-hmm. because your past plays out in your in your current life. And so how does she get out of this cycle, this mindset? I mean, mm-hmm. well, good news, she recognizes it, right? That's the first step. It's kind of re- realizing that your habits um, have context and have history and um, it's not inconsequential and... I think that just being aware sometimes helps to mitigate the bad behavior. But she is from your community. And if she were to go through your program, what would she learn? Right. So this did come up. So um, I'll change her name because it's a it's a personal story, but it was we'll call her Sarah. And she had come to me because her parents were um, her parents had struggled. Her father had passed away when she was young. So then it was her single mom that was struggling. And what she found is that she um she was essentially still living in the struggle that her mom was kind of like the stealing from Peter to pay Paul. And she just watched all that stress and she took it on literally like from when she was seven, she has essentially stayed stressed about money and she's the oldest. She helped to take care of her brother and sister when they were growing up. And yes, we want to first notice it and then we want to source it. So we want to think about where did we first see this happening in our life and reconnect with the reaction and the beliefs or the conclusions that we drew back then. And this is where I get teased a little bit that I'm like a money shrink, not officially, but, um, you know, I've, I wrote my book, the self-worth to network book with a therapist, actually, with a psychotherapist. So I could really understand and learn all of the behind the scenes and the psychology for us around money. Because what what happened was that, yes, she had this growing up where there was struggle around money. But what she chose to decide at the time is that it meant she always had to struggle with money. And so what I want people to start to do, I, I take people through a process where we help you rewrite your money story. And I'll just give you a few of the highlights that I helped Sarah through so that if you feel like there's an incident in your life, or in this case, even a series of incidents, you can start to think about this for yourself. So first thing you do is you think about the conclusions that you reached. And usually what happens is the more basic that they are, the easier that they lock in right? So she decided money was stressful, very basic visceral reaction. And it was almost like she can still hear the things that her mom said around money. Like we can't afford that. You know, that's too expensive. Money was just stressful all the time for them. And so then the next step is to look at what were the facts of the situation? You know, the facts were that her dad passed away. Um, He was an alcoholic. She had a single mom with three kids. She was trying to make it work. She actually ran a business and she was trying to raise the family, but she was never taught about money. And she never really had the chance to be independent with money until she had to be because her dad had handled it. So the single mom hadn't had that chance. So then the next step is to think about, well, what else could it have meant? So now instead of the seven-year-old, let's use our... 37-year-old or 47-year-old or 57-year-old mind to draw a different conclusion and get that her mom was learning to do everything. 
the reality was that Sarah never really wanted for anything. Like the mom found a way. And most importantly, what, what I helped Sarah realize is that her mom really loved her kids. She wanted to provide, she was doing the absolute best she could and that she had a lot of courage to persevere the way that she did. And so she could start to reframe the fear and instead look at her mom as having a huge amount of courage, whatever it takes, you know, I'm here for you and I'm going to be the best mom I can be. And then the last piece of it is finding the place of gratitude, like finding the place of like, how is my life better because this happened to me? And then she could recognize how she actually found her own strength at an early age and had this modeling of the courage and this whatever it takes attitude. And the last piece for Sarah was also a piece of forgiveness, a piece of forgiveness of, of her mom for modeling the fear, forgiveness for her dad for passing away young and really cutting the cord that loving her mom didn't mean that she had to also accept and continue the legacy of fear and, um, and recognizing that really, if she takes a step back, her mom, you know, believes in her, loves her and really wants the best for her. The forgiveness piece is so important. We, we are so hard on ourselves. And I think that it's so nice to hear that that is not only allowed, but it's essential. Mm, Yeah. And I think, yeah, it really freed her. You know, I think it, I think there was a lot of blaming that was happening and it wasn't intentional, but it was the only thing she could she felt like she could do, but she just didn't understand how to get out of it. And I think the, uh, the Moneymakers Academy gave her enough insight to say, wait a second, there's a problem here. I need to rewrite the story. And then because it was so deep and she was so in it, you know, she raised her hand and asked for help. And I was able to coach her through rewriting the story and really being able to create something different for herself. And there were a few tears in this conversation, but that, um, you know, she could really rise through it. And she literally sounded lighter by the time we were done with this conversation. And I hope that everybody listening can go through those same steps and think about where they are, you know, repeating a pattern from their parents or, you know, repeating a belief that they formed when they were young. Because usually what happens is we're forming this belief when we're young and then we keep proving ourselves right as we get older. So it ends up creating a pattern of, that same belief happening again and again. Yeah. And it's important to take control of that cycle right now. And I think that's why so many people stay on this paycheck to paycheck hamster wheel, because this is what they saw. They just never learned how to get out of it. And we really want to help them rise off of that to be able to live within their means, to save more and to really enjoy their life more. Belinda Rosenblum, Changing Lives. Thank you so much for coming on this episode, helping me tackle these money questions. Thank you for the work that you do and the website for all of you listeners who'd like to participate in Enjoy Extra Cash Every Month free online workshop. Go to ownyourmoney.com slash farnoosh or ownyourmoney.com slash so money. Both will work. And Belinda, thank you so much. I can't wait to have you back. Oh, thank you so much, Farnoosh. And and congratulations on the 6 million downloads and for all of the change that you are bringing to the world too. 